We're going to be in 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Have you ever felt like you just didn't fit in? Just different? No, you're shaking your head no. <laughs> Stephen fits in everywhere. When I was in junior high school, shockingly enough, I didn't fit in. Like, I was... I was the total geek. I was a nerd. I wasn't athletic at all. I was socially illiterate. Um, I know, it's shocking. I just did not fit in at all. Now, I, I was raised in the church, and we had a, a nice church that we went to. We lived in Valparaiso, Indiana at the time, and uh, had a really nice big church. We went to with a really nice big youth group and had a bunch of kids in the youth group. And I went to school with some of these kids. And they were awful, to put it bluntly. They were the kids that would beat other kids up. And by other kids, I mean me. <laughs> and others, my friends. Uh, they were just mean. A and it was constant. I hated going to school every single day and facing the difficulties that I would face. I hated recess. We would go out for recess. It was like you finished with lunch and you could have some free time outside. It wasn't really recess. There was no playground or anything. I mean, we were in junior high after all. But I hated it because every time you'd get out there, they were like predators and they would just, this group of guys would prowl the area and they would pick on whoever they could. And then I would go to church and youth group and there they were. And their parents went to church. And I would just think, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want nothing to do with it. In between my eighth grade year and my freshman year of high school, we moved. We moved out to the western suburbs of Chicago. And, and I remember thinking at that time, nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows. I can be anybody I want. I don't have to be the social outcast anymore. I don't have to be the kid that everybody picks on. I can be the cool kid now. They don't know. They will know what I want them to know. And so I started my freshman year of high school trying to fit in. I swore a lot. To the point where my non-Christian friends were like, you shouldn't talk like that. Well, that's bad when, when non-Christians say that you're swearing too much, right? <laughs> I tried to fit in. I, I made, you know, some popular friends. I, I didn't ever get into the party scene. I think God just saved me from a lot of those things. But I wanted to be who I wanted to be, and I didn't want to be different. Late, well, halfway or so through my freshman year, probably around this time of year, uh, my parents had found a church, actually my brother had actually found a church, and a great youth group, and he invited me to go to winter camp with them. I was like, ah, I don't know, I don't really want to do that anymore, don't really want to be a Christian, don't want to go back, but it sounded fun. So I went, and it was there at a youth winter camp that God reached into my heart and said, what are you doing? You are my child. Why are you trying to act like something else? And I realized that I was trying to be the same as everyone else. And that God had called me to be different. And the irony was that in all of my striving to be the same and to fit in, I was miserable. And I 
chose that day to follow Jesus Christ from then on. You ask me when I became a Christian, I don't really know. I don't know if it was when I was a little kid and prayed with parents or went forward at an altar call or if it was that moment at winter camp. I don't know. But I look back to that moment at winter camp as the time I said, I'm not going back. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. And the Gospels made a great difference in my life. Not that I have been perfect since that moment whatsoever. My wife and my mom could attest to that. But God continues to do a great work in my life. And I know if we went around this room and talked to many of you, you could share similar stories. I want to read for you 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And I want you to hear the difference that the gospel makes in our lives. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. And we're going to look at three differences that the gospel makes in our life. A different attitude different actions, and then a different standard, a different way of judging or looking at the world. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 and the different attitude that the gospel makes in our lives. And he starts by saying, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. If you've been here the past several weeks or at all through the first Peter series, this is probably starting to hear like a broken record. If you are a Christian, Peter says over and over and over again, if you are a Christian, you are going to suffer for your faith. And he actually says here, therefore, since Christ suffered. Think about the gospel, the the heart of what we believe as Christians. The gospel, all of Christianity is based on the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffered. He suffered in his life. He suffered on the cross. He suffered in our place. It should have been our suffering. It was our sins that he suffered for. And Peter takes this idea of his suffering. And he says, Peter challenges us. Now live a life that is done with sin. Christ's life shows us what it means to have a different standard, a different attitude, different actions. He is in that way an example for us. And Peter is saying, if Christ lived this perfectly and he suffered, what do you expect? 
One commentator writes this, Jesus knows what it's like to be ridiculed, reviled, beaten, spat upon, and subjected to the grossest miscarriage of justice. He knows what it's like to ask your closest friends to pray for you, but discover they'd rather just sleep. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be humiliated in public, and to be murdered. Jesus understands unjust suffering. He is a sympathetic Savior. Jesus went through all of that for you and for me. And through this, he shows us what it is like to live a world or live a life that is different because of the gospel, to live with a completely different attitude. And it was that difference that led to the suffering, not helped him to escape the suffering. And Peter is tying into that and saying, okay, if that's the Savior you follow, Arm yourself with the same attitude. The gospel is not just something we accept one moment in our lives, check a box, and then move on as if it never happened. Well, I've got my ticket into heaven, so I'm all good because I prayed a prayer way back when, and I'm done. That is, unfortunately, I think what a lot of modern Christianity teaches. Did you receive Jesus? Great, and that's the end of it. That is not the way Scripture deals with it. Scripture says, did you receive Jesus? Great. Now that changes everything. Let's talk about the difference it needs to make in your life. The gospel says that Jesus died for sin, rose from the dead, promising new life to all who believes in him. He died for sin. He provided sin's final punishment. He took it upon himself The end of the sinful life is ultimately death. That is the price, the punishment for sin. Jesus went to the end result of sin, stood there in our place, and took it. Took it upon himself and conquered it. And then he rose from the dead, promising new life to all who believe in him. New life in Christ. Not just a better life. Not just what you want made a little bit better. Not just fixed up and cleaned up a little bit. A new and completely different life in Jesus Christ. Friends, people that tell you, come to church, follow Jesus, and he'll give you every desire of your heart, and he'll give you everything that you want, and you'll get your best life now, that is heresy. It is wrong. It is completely out of line with 1 Peter who says, arm yourselves with the same attitude of Christ since Christ suffered in his body. Who do we think we are to think we're going to get anything different? This truth of the gospel is the truth that saves us, and it's the truth that shapes our lives now. Peter is taking the gospel, including suffering and resurrection, and he's saying, live it out. Let this shape everything about you. This is the attitude we are to have, dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. And throughout the book, throughout the letter of 1 Peter, Peter says over and over again, understand that this difference that the gospel makes in you will not be understood by the world around you. Not only will it not be understood and confusing to them, but they will persecute you because of it they will take our messages of truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear it as a message of hate and judgment. Have you ever faced that? 
Tell somebody, Jesus died to save you from your sins. What are you saying? I'm a sinner? Uh, yeah. Just like me. I'm a sinner too. And, and you're a sin- How dare you say I'm a sinner? Well, here's what the Bible says is sin. Who, who are you to say that's wrong? I mean, haven't you repeated that conversation with people over and over and over again? And you're like, I'm just trying to share the good news and you're taking it as judgment. It'd be like a lifeguard jumping in the water and the person say, how dare you judge me for drowning? I'm just trying to help. But Peter's saying, the world won't get it. Peter's talked about this throughout the book. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, in all this, he talks about the gospel and the calling we have in Jesus Christ. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He says, you're going through tough times. And we've talked about the persecution that, that Peter's recipients are going through. Widespread, uh, flagrant persecution hadn't quite broken out yet. We know in history it's about to. But they're beginning to feel the inklings of it. They're beginning to sense their culture turning against them and rejecting the gospel, not just not believing it, but seeing it as a threat to their way of thinking and their way of life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 17, he, he talks about how our believing in the gospel changes our roles in the world and the world will be threatened by it. He goes through husbands and wives and slaves. Chapter 2, verse 21, he says that we will suffer and by doing this, we are following the example of Jesus Christ. Therefore, according to Peter and according to the rest of Scripture, living a gospel shaped attitude will lead to suffering. We will be different, must be different than this world. And our attitude will not be accepted by the world. This should be no surprise. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And he's not talking about just wearing a, a cross pendant jewelry, which is fine if you do that. But what he's talking about is take up your cross. Jesus said that as he is going to the cross, he's going to die, and he says, you need to see your life in this world in the same way. Dead. On a path following Christ wherever he leads. To new life in Christ and in Christ alone. Through all of us, this, there is an important teaching. Righteous suffering is not a sign of God's disfavor. It's not. In fact, Peter's going to turn that on its head and say just the opposite, that their suffering actually shows that they're following Christ because they're not giving in to the ways of the world. He goes on to say, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Peter is saying here that we have two choices. We can either follow Christ, which will at times bring suffering with it, choose to follow Christ over any of the priorities of this world, or we can give in to sin. We can go with the flow. We can fit in. We don't have to be different. We can look just like everybody else. He says, but when you choose to suffer for the sake of the gospel, it shows that you're following Christ that you're done with sin. You're saying no to that. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. This phrase, done with sin, has caused a lot of debate throughout the ages. 
Some people say it means, well, once you're a Christian, you will never again sin. You're done with sin. I just can't believe that it means that. He identifies people in chapter 1, verse 3, as having been given new birth into a living hope through Jesus. He says, you're a Christian, you've been saved by Jesus Christ, but to the same people in chapter 1, 14, he says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Why would you have to tell somebody not to conform to their previous desires unless there was still some tug of those previous desires? If we could no longer sin, much of the New Testament would be completely irrelevant and unnecessary. We still face, as Christians, the pull of the old life. So what's Peter talking about here? What does he mean with done with sin? He could mean much like Paul kind of a a philosophical or a theological understanding of being done with sin. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 2, and listen to what Paul would say about being done with sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, Paul takes this picture of the gospel and he says, because Jesus died, you died. That old you is dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you have new life in him. And so much of Paul's theology could be summed up in, now go live that out. Be who you are in Jesus Christ. Quit being who you were in sin. Think of yourselves in this way. Peter could be tying into that. That, That's true and certainly taught in many places in Scripture. I think that Peter's understanding of this is a little bit different, though. If we look back to 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter has, if I could put it this way, a much more concrete or practical way of thinking about it. Throughout the letter, Peter has made clear that trusting in Jesus will put his readers at odds with the world. It will make them different, and the world won't get it. And that difference will probably almost certainly, lead to suffering. And he has said throughout that their suffering for their faith is evidence of their trust in the gospel. So he's saying, look, there are, there are two paths. You can fail to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and just live like the world. Keep living that way. If that's all there is, live that way. Or, he says you can believe in the gospel and live with a gospel-shaped attitude that will lead to suffering. Therefore, Peter says to these people that are suffering and saying, is this worth it? 
Why am I struggling? Why am I losing so much? Why am I hurting so much? Why are my friends and my neighbors and my family members, why are they turning against me? Shouldn't I just give in? And Peter says, no. You are suffering because you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your suffering shows that you are on the path of following Jesus and you're done with sin. You're not on that path. Why would you go back? He says, also in verse 2, as a result, they do not live the rest of their early lives, earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Bob Dylan famously wrote a song, you got to serve somebody. Doesn't matter who you are, you're going to serve someone. You may not understand that you're serving somebody. You may not admit it, but we all serve somebody or something. And Peter lays out two paths. We can live our earthly lives for human desires, getting what we want, or we can trust in the Lord, what he wants for us. The world, our culture, wants to say there are many different paths, many different roads, many different ways to live your life, many different truths. You just pick the one that makes you happy and you follow that and nobody has the right to judge anybody else and tell them they're on the wrong path. Scripture says differently. It says take all those paths. Now understand, there is the path of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in our place to save us from our sins and rose from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believe. There's one path and then everything else is on the other path. Oh, there might be a lot of different lanes on that path and you might feel very free to choose all of those different lanes or any one at any given time, depending on what makes you happy. But it's one path and it's leading to death and judgment. Too often, I think as Christians, we want to skip ahead to what do I do? And it's good, right? How do I live for Christ? How do I have... have Bible-shaped, gospel-believing actions. What do I do? What do I stop doing? And that's good. We'll get there in a moment. But we need to start with a gospel-shaped attitude. How do I view myself as different than the world around me because of Jesus Christ? How has Jesus made me different through the gospel? How does that shape who I am and everyday choices that I make? This different gospel-shaped attitude will lead, must lead, to different gospel-shaped actions. Look at verses 3 through 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. It's interesting the way he starts this. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter if you were saved at four years old out of a sinful path, past of stealing your friend's toys or you were saved at 44 out of a sinful past of crime and drugs. Whatever our sinful past is, it's enough God says, enough. You've done that enough. You know where it leads. Why do you want to go back to that? You see, it's the great lie of sin that that we need to have more. 
that if we could just get a little more of what we want, then we would feel better. Well, we're not satisfied with what we want and what we have now, but if we got just a little bit more, if we could do that thing just a little bit more, this time it would satisfy. Sin never satisfies long-term. As a pastor, it's a great privilege to be able to counsel people. But it's hard because people come with struggles and past sins and difficulties. And I hear their stories and, and I see what it's doing to their lives and they'll tell me, I don't want to do it anymore. It's hurt me for so long. I thought it would be okay, but now this, this is the situation that I'm in. I'll tell you, I hear these things and I look at my own kids and I think, I wish I could take the lessons these people have learned and just plug them into your brain to save you from these paths, to save you from going down these roads, to get the perspective of the people that have been down them and go, I don't want to be on this road anymore. Honestly, I wish I could convince myself of it sometimes. And all of us. To say it's been enough. Peter gives a list in verse 3. We're not going to go through each one. I think it's enough to take it collectively together. He says all this is doing what the pagans choose to do. By that, he simply means everyone who doesn't follow Christ. And if you look at each one, they all together basically mean the same thing. At the heart of each of these things is the idea of I do what I want, what makes me happy right now. Don't we live in a culture today that says you should be happy right now? Just do what you want to make yourself happy right now. Yet you turn on the news, you talk to friends, and how many of the people chasing after their own happiness are actually happy right now? It's a lie. Now, I want to be careful. I want to be careful here. Peter's not saying that everyone who is not a Christian necessarily lives or indulges in these horrible sins. Not every person who who is not a Christian is the worst possible sinner in the world, okay? I want to be very clear because some people say, well, I know so-and-so is not a Christian. They're a really good person. They're a better person than me. That may be. But Peter's point is that these sins are the ultimate expression of that way of life, whether the individuals take it to that extreme or not. That's the path that you're on when you're not trusting in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. The Greek here is so incredible. It literally says they are surprised that you don't run with them. It's like the world is just trucking down the road as fast as they can go. And they're going, come on, come with us. It'll be great. And they're just running as fast as they can. So it says, they're surprised that you don't run with them. And then the other phrase is, into the flood. Or the overflowing parts of sin. They're surprised that you're not running with them into the flood. And they're looking at you going, you're a fool for not joining us. So the picture is running and I'm happy and I'm getting everything I want. I'm going full speed in this direction. Meanwhile, there's a wave coming at me the other direction that's going to wipe me out. And the world's going, this is great. And 
we were all like that. But not only does the gospel save us, but it pulls away the blindfold from our eyes so that we're able to step back from that scene and go, you're running toward that and it's coming at you and I want nothing to do with it. I'm not going to do that anymore. And you think I'm the dumb one. But I don't want to join in that. Now on a separate note, we should also say, let me step in and rescue you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's a different sermon. Peter's not talking about that here, but we could go elsewhere. Peter has told his readers, and you, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, in his great mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil or perish, spoil, or fade. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. This truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, must shape our attitude toward our lives. That we are dead to sin, and we are done with sin, and we are alive in Jesus Christ. It then must shape our actions. We must stop living in sin. That's not the path that we're on. We are called to be different. We must fight against sin. And understand as you do this, the world will look at you and think you're nuts. Because it doesn't make sense to the world. And that attitude of looking at us like we're crazy will inevitably lead to our suffering. The gospel will shape our actions to be different. But Peter has one more difference that the gospel makes in our lives. Look at verses 5 through 6. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Peter says, look, There is a judge. God is the judge. This world says I'm the judge of myself. I get to do what makes me happy and you have no right to tell me different. And you know what? They're right. I have no right. You have no right. But God, the creator of the universe, yeah, he has a right. He is the judge. When we come to understand that there is a God and he sent his son to save us, then we understand he has the right to judge The world looks at things and says, well, this is success. And this is failure. And the sins that Peter listed in verse 3, these are the natural outcomes of this standard. Follow what makes you happy. Do what is good for you. Make yourself happy. People believe that their way of judging right and wrong is correct. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve took from a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I've talked so many times that in the Hebrew way of thinking, it wasn't just a fruit. It was a fruit that meant claiming for yourself the right to determine good and evil. All of human history is the outcome of us thinking we should have the right to determine what's right and wrong. And the gospel says only God has that right. Jesus came and died 
for our sins because God has judged that sin is wrong and that it leads to death and he wants to save us from that, not just allow us to keep running toward it. This is a a different standard. It's a different way of judging ourselves and judging the world around us. When the gospel is our standard, we realize that what Jesus has been saying throughout this letter is right. It is better to suffer for the gospel than to get by or even be successful in sin. And then he starts talking about the living and the dead. In verse 5, it says that God judges the living and the dead. Then verse 6, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. And just quickly, some take this and they link it with chapter 319 we talked about last week. And they say that Peter's talking about a way of hearing the gospel after you have died. And there's this opportunity for salvation later on. And some tie this into purgatory. That is not what scripture says. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Peter's not talking about some offer of salvation after we die. In fact, his whole point here is looking at our lives now, and the world looks at our lives and judges us based on how happy we are, how successful we are, how much we're getting what we want. And so the world is looking at those that are suffering, the Christians, and going, you failed. You lose. We're happy, and you're miserable, therefore we must be right. Now take that to the extreme. By this time, in the early church, Christians, who believed they were saved by Jesus Christ and that their Savior was coming back, well, some of them have died. How foolish do they look to the world when they have lived trusting in a returning Messiah and he hasn't come back now and they died and the world says this life is all there is. You suffered for him and he didn't come and get you and you're dead now. You lost. And Peter is saying, "Uh uh-uh. No way. Open your eyes up to the larger truth. They might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body. He says, but they live according to God in regard to the spirit. The gospel says that God judges us, both the living and the dead. This life is not all there is. Death is not the ultimate end. The gospel gives us a different standard. Friends, don't buy into the standard of this world. Don't. Fight it. Open up your scriptures, read it, pour over it, spend time in prayer. God, help me to see the world through your eyes, not through mine. Sin will be judged. And God has graciously given us his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from that judgment and given us that truth to take to the world to save others. God wants people to be saved and he has chosen you and me to take that message to them. But if we're going to do that, We need to live this different standard in our own lives. What difference is the gospel making in your life? Is your attitude toward life different? Does the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for you, therefore the old you is dead? And the truth that he rose from the dead, therefore you you have new life in Jesus Christ, does that change your attitude? Are you living with different actions? living to demonstrate the gospel, living to live the holiness of Jesus Christ? Do you have a different standard of looking at the world? 
What difference is the gospel making in your life? All three of these are crucial. If we have different actions and different standards without a different attitude, then we'll become judgmental. Oh, I'm just going to look at the world different. I'm going to act different. But I don't actually have an attitude infused with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we have a different attitude and different standards without different actions, then we're a bunch of hypocrites. Which, frankly, a lot of us struggle with, don't we? If we have a different attitude and different actions without a different standard, then I think we will fall into the false idea that there are just many ways to be saved. Well, this is how I'm going to live, but you find your own way. Let me leave you with the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. The gospel makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I look back on my life and those times that I wanted to fit in, I can see now with the perspective of age how foolish that was. And yet, God, I know And as I try to follow your son, Jesus, and struggle in this world, there are times that I want to give in. I don't want to be different. And as Christians, we struggle to follow you, to trust you. We don't like the difference and the struggle that it brings in our lives. Or sometimes we're not even aware of the way that we're giving in to ways of the world, thinking as this world thinks, judging as this world judges. Father, may the gospel make the difference in our lives to change our attitude to be like that of Jesus, to change our actions to correctly display the new life we have in Jesus, to change our standard of looking at the world that we would see through the lens of the gospel that it would lead us then to say no to sin, but also to reach out with the rescue of the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone we meet. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know your son as their savior, and they're running down that road in their own way, seeking their own happiness, and maybe today you woke them up this morning saying, I've got something different for you. May today be the day they hear the difference of the great news of Jesus Christ and salvation through him. And may they say yes to your son as their savior. In whose name we pray, amen.